your scripture to John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the first half of that chapter together. This, of course, is the Good Shepherd Discourse, Jesus being our shepherd. And Jesus being our shepherd is crucial for our our understanding to show what happens when we lessen or remove the Lord as our shepherd. Pastor Paul Miller did a little experiment by simply removing that thought and references of him from the grandest of all chapters on the Good Shepherd, Psalm 23. And I want to read it to you as he has removed that thought and that reference. Here's how Psalm 23 sounds with those thoughts removed. My, I shall be in want. Me, me. My soul, me. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear. Me, me. Me in my presence, in the presence of my enemies. My head, my cup. Me, all the days of my life, I will dwell. Paul Miller concludes, whenever we remove our good shepherd from our lives, we are left self-centered, obsessing over our wants, and paralyzed by fear. The point is, we need a good shepherd. And in our text today, Jesus says very clearly that he is that shepherd. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. 
They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Here again, there are two very different reactions to what Jesus is saying. And it's really clear because you can see what he is claiming. I think you're, you're beginning to understand, at least I hope you're beginning to understand by chapter 10 in John's gospel that context is everything. You have to read John in the context that he is, he is uh, talking in. And Jesus, if you remember, if you look back at the last chapter, he has just called the Pharisees blind guides. You're blind. And here he goes a step further using, using very uh, well-known embedded imagery that the Jews, Jews just knew inside and out from the Old Testament and from experience of a shepherd. And he goes on to insinuate that the Pharisees are false shepherds. F.F. Bruce says, in context, it is difficult to avoid identifying the Pharisees with the thieves and robbers and stranger and hired hand. This is how Jesus is describing the Pharisees. And he goes further to expose that they are the false shepherds of Israel. And in place of them, he claims to be the good shepherd. He claims to be the fulfillment of, of Ezekiel 34, because Ezekiel 34, the reason I had us read that is because that would be coursing through the minds of the Jews. That's a very well-known passage to the Jews. Ezekiel to us is very obscure. Ezekiel to the Jews was not. They knew what Jesus was saying here. Ezekiel 34 is a scathing indictment on the leaders of God's people during the Babylonian captivity. He condemns them in Ezekiel on three counts. The leaders using the people for their own selfish and greedy needs. For their poor spiritual leadership, secondly. And for not only refusing to care for the helpless and needy in their society, but actually acting cruelly towards them. And you can see why Jesus picked up on this and talked to them about he is the good shepherd, and indicted the Pharisees. Because in context, chapter 9, we have this blind man who is cast out from society, begging at the temple, begging at the temple. And he wasn't cared for by the Pharisees, by the leaders. And then when he is cared for and cured, what do they do to him? They throw him out. They cast him out of the synagogue, effectively casting him out of society. That's when Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. I am the good shepherd. I am that person. 
who will lead the flock, care for the flock, and save the flock. And that's how we're going to break down the text today. First, in verses 1 through 6, we see that he is the good shepherd that will lead the flock. He is the good shepherd that will lead. Jesus calls the Pharisees strangers and thieves in these six verses. Not communicating necessarily what they do, although they were doing that, but much more calling into question their legitimacy. The legitimacy of them being the shepherds of Israel. If you look at the imagery there, he has them climbing over walls to get in, seeing that they were not the legitimate leaders. By contrast, in verses 3 and 4, you can see how Jesus sets himself apart. He is the shepherd. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he leads them out, he goes on ahead of them. Jesus is the true leader that the true sheep will follow. Jesus is the true leader that the true sheep will follow. And I think there are two exhortations for us that we can take from these verses when we come to applying it to our life. Sheep, first of all, must know their shepherd's voice, don't they? My sheep will know my voice, he says. We have to know the voice of our shepherd, don't we? We have to know what his voice sounds like. The, The imagery that he is drumming up here is... Many times in ancient Israel, several different flocks would be penned together. And in the morning, a shepherd would come and he would call to his sheep using his voice or his special call or a whistle. And his sheep would follow him and the other sheep would stay there. This is what the, the, the common Jew had seen hundreds and hundreds of times played out. So when Jesus says, they will know my voice, and when I go, they'll follow, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And in the world today, we have many, many competing voices, don't we? We have many competing ideologies, many competing teachings and teachers, more than any other time in the history of man. And how will we know that it's God's voice? How we know it's Jesus' voice that's leading us? How do you know your shepherd's voice when you go to a church on vacation and there's preaching there? How do you know it's Christ-centered preaching? Or maybe you, when you're seeking direction for, from God in your life, how do you know that God is telling you to go this direction? Or maybe in your own mind. How do you know it's God's voice? That inner monologue that we all have, right? How do you delineate between your voice and the voice of God? Uh, One of the guys I disciple, we were talking about this, and, and he told a very humorous thing, that when he was a child, he tried... He would hear the voices when he prayed, different voices. And he said, you know, if I can make the voice burp in my head, it's not God. I mean, he was a little boy, 
So if he can make the voice, if it's saying, do this, and if he can make it burp, he thought, you know, that's not the voice. God would never burp. So that's how he delineated between his own inner monologue and the voice of God. Very cute. But how do you today? How do you know it's God's voice? How do you know it's his voice? When I say Walter Cronkite, many of you of that generation can instantly hear his voice, can't you? Very distinctive voice. What about when I say James Earl Jones, kids? Maybe you don't know who it is, but you know it's Darth Vader. That's Darth Vader. You know that voice. It's very familiar. As a matter of fact, if I read these lists of names, you can instantly, their voices are known to you. John Wayne, Vincent Price, Sean Connery, Fran Drescher, Elvis Presley, Jack Nicholson, Chris Rock. You instantly hear their, their, their voices in your head, don't you? God has a distinct voice. And you get to know that distinct voice by spending time in the words that he has said. That's the only way, guys. That's how you get to know when something is said and you go, it doesn't sound like God to me. You have to marinate yourself in God's word. That's the reason we memorize scripture around here. Our current memory verse is Romans 12, 9, and 10. And at the end of that verse, in, in, in verse 10, it says, devote yourselves to one another. What does that look like? What does it look like when, when the Lord is, is encouraging you to devote yourself to a brother or sister and do something that kind of looks and acts or sounds countercultural? How about Romans 12.15 where it says, consider others better than yourself. What does that look like in your life when, when the Lord speaks into your life in, in, in a certain situation and reminds you of that ver, ver, verse? It really looks countercultural. But you have to know that voice. You have to know God's word in order to hear his voice. But we can't just know his voice once we hear it. Here's the second hurdle, if you will. We have to follow that voice, don't we? That's what Jesus is talking about here. He calls them, and then he starts walking in one direction, and his sheep follow him, right? Here in America, we're familiar with cattle drives. We don't have this this backdrop of shepherding. We have the backdrop in America of cattle drives. You know, movies like City Slickers and Red River and those westerns where, where the cowboys are behind the cattle and beside the cattle, herding the cattle and driving the cattle in one direction. That's not the image here at all, is it? He says he calls his sheep, know the voice, and what do the sheep do? They follow behind. They follow him. Many Christians have, don't have this image of how Jesus leads. 
Many, many Christians have the image of, the American image of Jesus driving us. That's not the right image. Greg Matt in his book, I Am Changes Who I Am, great title. He says, many more people feel driven by religion than led by God. They feel like God is behind them calling for more instead of in front of them leading them to more. Isn't that great? That's what God is doing. He's not driving you to do more. He's leading you to give you more. We have to realize that. That's the shepherd imagery. Do you feel driven by Jesus? Do you feel driven by the law? Do you feel that God, Jesus is always calling you for more? not so sure that that is the voice of God. I think that's more the voice of man. Because the image here is quite different. It's of leading. But following is difficult, isn't it? Following is difficult. Elizabeth Elliot said, Experience has taught me that the shepherd is far more willing to show his sheep a path than the sheep are willing to follow on that path. We don't like to follow. We think it's demeaning to follow. Especially when Jesus leads into difficulty, isn't it? And Jesus does lead into difficulty. Think about that a minute. Think about the shepherd imagery that is here. Think about the shepherd leading his sheep, walking, and the, the, the flock leading, and he leads them down into a really dry, rocky, craggy valley. And the sheep don't like that. There's nothing there for them to eat. It's difficult to walk. Have you ever felt like that in your own life? You're starting to get hungry and thirsty, but the shepherd is still leading because the shepherd knows that on the other side of that ridge is the best meadow for grazing. And he's going to make them lie down in that meadow, in that pasture, in that field. And it's going to be delightful. But we look down and go, that's rocky, rocky, craggy, sharp, difficult, I'm not going. That's the tendency of our hearts, isn't it? See, we have to learn to trust our good shepherd, don't we? He knows what he's doing. He knows where he's leading you. And throughout scripture, it doesn't say, I'm going to lead them to a place that is really hard and that's where they're going to stay. In scripture, it's always, yeah, it might be difficult for a time, but you know what? You're going to be in a wonderful meadow. I know where I'm taking you. With sweet grass and a lot of rest. That's the picture that we have, the overarching narrative in scripture. We have to learn to trust our shepherd, that he is really what he says he is. The adjective is good. He's a good shepherd. The second section of this text shows us not only that he's a, a um, leader, but that he also cares for us. He is a caring shepherd. He is a protector. And that's the second part of our text. He is the great protector. That's what verses 7 through 10 predominantly show us. 
Here Jesus is saying another one of his I am statements. I am the gate, right? They didn't understand his imagery. And so he starts again. He says, I tell you the truth, truly, truly, I am the gate for the sheep. They're again saying that wonderful Greek construction that would remind them of what God calls himself in Exodus to Moses. I am the gate. He's declaring his divinity again. But this time he's not declaring that he is God who guides, like light. I am the light of the world. Or the God who provides, like I am the bread of the world. He's saying, I am the gate. I am the God who protects. Now let me, again, tell you a little background on this so you can understand it. The gate imagery is still shepherd imagery. There are two different kinds of sheep pens that they had, one in town, one in the country. The one in the town was a constructed, usually. It was a room or an open stall with high walls with a, with a formal gate. And that's probably what Jesus is referring to in verses 2 and 3 when he talks about thieves climbing over and getting in. But there was another pen, one that was out in the field. When the shepherds were out in the field and it was too far to come back and forth into town, what they would do is, is construct a rudimentary pen with, with rocks and they would have one small entrance on one side of it. And at night, to keep the sheep in, to keep them from wandering and getting into danger and trouble, the shepherd would sleep, would lie across that opening so that he would know if a sheep was trying to get out and go into danger. He was the physical gate to that pen. So when he says, I am the good shepherd and I am the gate, it is one and the same. And he's talking about an imagery of protection. He's protecting his sheep. Jesus speaks here of providing a certain type of protection, though, isn't it? It's not just physical protection. Yes, God physically protects us. He does. But he, that, that's not the guarantee. That's not the guarantee, people. Many times that's, that's what confuses people about Christianity. That's why questions come up of how can bad things happen to good people. That's, that's the confusion. He, he doesn't always protect us physically. I mean, you, you know the sermon illustrations. Sometimes he does. You know, the, that, that story of a missionary couple who was reaching out to a tribe in New Guinea and, and the tribe came at night to, to kill the missionaries. But they looked at the missionaries' hut and around it was an army. And so they fled. Later, when, when the chief came to, to Christ, he told them this story and he asked them, who were, who were all those people surrounding your hut? Missionaries had no idea what they were talking about. God does protect. You know, I can think of a time in my own life when, when our family, I was about 10 years old, and our family was going to visit my grandparents, and they lived on a lake, and it was a big uh, uh, road, a steep road going down to the lake. And we were going there in the winter and we just had an ice storm and my father made the wrong turn down the wrong road. And it was actually a driveway that was a sheet of ice. And we went sliding down there and then the the car just suddenly came to a stop. 
right next to a, a big cliff. We kind of climbed out tentatively. When the tow truck came, the minute the hook was put on the car, the car lurched forward. And it ended up that a little, you know, the ash cans, the little ash cans for fireplaces, a little ash can was frozen in the ice. And that stopped our car. There's no way it should have stopped the car. Yes, God does protect physically. But if that is where your hope is, I want to tell you, you will be so confused in this life, guys. You'll be asking the continual question, where's God now? Because that's not the guarantee. The guarantee is of spiritual protection. Because for every one of the stories of physical protection, you have a a Jim Elliot who died trying to reach the Alka Indians. For every car that was stopped by a little ash can, we have the example of one of my seminary professors who's over in Korea doing evangelism, and his bus careened off a bridge, and he was permanently brain damaged. You see, your faith, your hope is put in Jesus. To, if, if it's put in Jesus to protect you physically, you'll, you'll be confused But if you put your hope and faith and trust that Jesus will protect you spiritually, you'll never be let down. Never. Because that's the promise. That's where our hope lies. Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher and author, wrote this, The Lord is my shepherd is written many more times on tombstones than lives. What's he mean there? Dallas Willard was trying to communicate that in his way, that spiritual protection, the hope that we find spiritually, needs to be something that impacts our life right now. We need to understand that. That Jesus, what Jesus goes on to say is really true. Whoever enters through me will be saved. It's the next line, isn't it? There are two applications here. If you're here today, and maybe what I'm saying is kind of a little confusing. What do you mean, Jesus is your Savior? What, I don't. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. I don't get that. I don't understand that. If you're here today, and, and that's your reaction, if you've never thought that you need spiritual protection, not just physical protection, but spiritual protection, then Jesus is the gate through which you gain that. The offer of spiritual protection, if you notice what he says there, is whomever enters. One commentator wrote, there is an unrestricted offer of spiritual protection with a restricted route. Unrestricted offer of spiritual protection with a restricted route. That's the picture being drawn here, isn't it? In one sense, the church is non-exclusive open to whoever realizes that they need safety, whoever realizes that they need saved, whoever realizes that they need forgiveness. That's the whoever. If that's you, Jesus is the gate through which you receive that spiritual protection, that forgiveness. And if you don't realize that you need forgiveness, let me use this image once again. 
Imagine if all of a sudden this screen went dark and then it came light again and it started showing all of the deeds that nobody sees. All that you have said that maybe nobody heard. How about all your thoughts that are secret? We need forgiveness. And that's what Jesus provides. Jesus says, whoever realizes this need for forgiveness, I'm the gate for your spiritual protection. I'm the gate through which you get all the forgiveness. An unrestricted offer with a restricted route. And in that way, the church is an exclusive club, if you will. Because there's only one way into the sheep pen. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's only one way. Jesus claims that he is the way for spiritual protection. He is the way to be kept safe. I mean, that's what the apostles said when they were, after they were flogged in Acts 4, when they were standing before the Sanhedrin, they said, there's only one name under heaven that men must be saved, Jesus Christ. There's only one way. There's only one gate. In a couple chapters, John is going to reiterate this. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one gets to the Father except through me. He's the gate. But there's also an application for us Christians here. I am the great, and I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That Greek word can be, and many times your Bibles will have this note in there, can be translated kept safe. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be kept safe. I think this is a great picture of our assurance of salvation. Some people, maybe even some of you sitting here, might think, well, I can dive in and out of salvation. If I'm good enough, I'm in. If I'm not so good, maybe I can wander out. I think the picture that Jesus is painting here is he lays across and he doesn't let you out. And as dumb sheep, we try to get out. <laughs> we say, you know, we bump up against it. But the picture is, I'm not going to let you wander. You're mine. As a matter of fact, next week when we, when we talk about uh, his next uh, teaching, he's going to say, whomever I have in my hand, no man can pluck out. Guys, you can't get out. You can't jump out. He's not going to let you. You're his. And that's a beautiful picture. And that's a beautiful security that we have in Jesus Christ. Because no matter what you do, he won't let you go. When Christ has you, you will be kept safe. It's guaranteed. This is actually beautifully illustrated in the life of Daniel Webster. He had an unusual marriage proposal to his wife, Grace Fletcher. One day while they were courting, the 19th century lawyer and statesman was helping her tie and untie skeins of silk when suddenly he stopped. And she looked over at him and he said, Grace, we've been tying and untying knots for quite some time. Let us see if we can tie a knot which will not untie for a lifetime. Grace accepted Webster's proposal and they did something unique and memorable. 
They took a piece of that silk thread and they together tied it into a knot that they thought was untieable. After they had died, their children found a little box and on top of the box it was labeled precious documents and in, the, in there were the letters that went back and forth of their courting and a little piece of silk thread with the untieable knot. That was their way of guaranteeing their covenant. Jesus has a better one. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The sheep's lives out in the country were quite literally in the hands of the shepherd. It was dangerous to be out there. Wolves always were constantly threatening the flock. And the shepherd was the only one who stood between them and the wolves. Who stood between life and death. He was the only one who loved them, who loved those sheep so much that he said, I will protect you and stand between you and death, even if it means my own death. And shepherds died. Again, the Pharisees here are pictured as illegitimate shepherds, hired hands, who when they see danger, what do they do? I'm out of here. I'm not going to put myself in danger. But Christ says no less than five times in these verses, guys, five times. I will lay down my life for the sheep. He's saying over and over again, I will not flee when danger comes. I won't flee when the wolf comes to kill you. I will stand between you, the sheep, and danger out here. I will stand between you, sheep, and death. I will stand in the gap. And that's exactly what Jesus did six months later. Six months from when he said this. Jesus, our good shepherd, stood between you and me and our greatest enemy, death. He literally laid down his life. He did not flee. That's the beauty of, of, of getting a window into Gethsemane, isn't it? There was that real temptation to flee. And he didn't flee. He was looking death in the face and he said, no. I'm going to stay for my sheep. Though innocent of sin, he allowed himself to be declared guilty. Though he could have fled, he stayed and suffered and died. Though he is our shepherd, what the beautiful imagery here that the Bible works with again and again, though he is our shepherd, he became our sacrificial lamb. Isn't that beautiful? And some, maybe even here, look at Jesus' death and say, oh, that's tragic. I'm here to tell you that Jesus' death is not tragic. What's tragic is David Gray's death. That's tragic. Dying at 44, leaving a young wife and three young children. That's tragic. Jesus' death is not tragic because it had purpose. It had reason. 
It had meaning. He did it intentionally. He died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserved on the cross. He took that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it perfectly. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin and he says, here, take my perfect record. God holds nothing against you. Jesus said himself, his death was not tragic. It was purposefully planned. And he says it over and over again. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And there's the guarantee. Did you see it? Did you catch it? There's the silk knot. The guarantee that we will be saved. He's going to lay down his life, but he's going to take it up again. He's talking about the resurrection here, guys. If you've repented of your sins and have trusted Jesus that he actually took your penalty and died in your place, if that is your understanding and that you believe that death loosened its grip after three days and Jesus is alive today, if that is what you believe, that resurrection guarantees your salvation, your life, that you, while you will die physically, will never die spiritually. Romans 6 puts it this way, if we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his life, in his resurrection. The resurrection is the guarantee. The resurrection is the knot that cannot be untied. The resurrection is the power to crack death's grip on you. That's the power. I'll leave you with this illustration. A minister was in Italy, and there he saw a grave of a man who had died a century before. This man was an unbeliever and completely against Christianity, but was a little afraid of it too. So what this man did is he had a huge stone slab put over his grave so that he would not be raised from the dead. And he had written on that slab... I do not want to be raised from the dead. I do not believe in it. Written on that stone slab. Now, unbeknownst to him, when he was buried, apparently an acorn fell into his grave. And over the centuries, the acorn became an oak. And a hundred years later, had grown up through the slab and had cracked the slab in two. The minister looked at it and said, if an acorn which has the power of biological life in it can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a man's life? 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Use it. Change our minds. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.